right, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We have what I would not have defined before really digging into this as a tremendously important chapter, but in studying it and in what I'm going to communicate, I think that this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. That's a very big thing to say, and the reason I'm saying is it is because the subject matters, the variety of subject matters that we're going to sit in, there are so many threads that link back into Israel's history, and there are so many threads that point directly to Jesus Christ. So we are going to read all of chapter 7 in its entirety to begin with, and then I have a lot to say as usual. 1 Samuel 7, Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the I learned how to say Baals, it's probably Baals, and the asterisk, and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as whole as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far is below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. Is that what that says? It means tooth, and I wrote tooth, and I can't even read that word because I wrote over it too thick. Sorry. And called his name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the ter- territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath 
And Israel recovered its territories from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the, and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. All right, does that sound like one of the most important chapters in the Bible to you? On the surface, not so much. You dig into the background of what's going on. We start talking about pillars of the faith, everything that's going on in this culture. We can relate so many of these things to our lives today, and there's so much to relate and point to the time of Jesus in this. So remember where we are. This is a, a closing out, a major section of Samuel. Next week, Israel is going to ask for a king in chapter 8, another foundational chapter in the Bible. But here's what the Lord is setting up in this narrative and in his people. God wanted Samuel. God wanted a Samuel. And he put Elkanah and his wife Hannah into this barren position and all the hardships that she was going through to bring about her prayer and her vow and her commitment to the Lord. If you give me a son... He is going to be yours all the days of his life. And again, this, this, is what the, this is the man that the Lord was looking for, was Samuel. Put her specific life context into that position. Provides this miracle child in Samuel. Hannah is uh, faithful to the vow that she made to the Lord. And the sacrifice that was all the days of her life. We have this incredible song that Hannah sings earlier on, which is just, again, incredible that women in the future, Mary and Elizabeth, I mean, they're looking back to Hannah's song for sure as they are repeating those same words in the future. Then we get out of what God, why God needs a Samuel is because his word, his, who he is in truth needs to be restored in the culture. Who God is has been lost to the nation of Israel as a whole. Not every single individual, but as a whole in what is going on. This is still in the time of the judges, where it says that everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. They are not living life according to the directions that God has given to them, and they're suffering the consequences. In the middle of this, the Philistines, this, these imports into the land just like the Jews are, they go to war against the Jews in a place called Ebenezer. So the Ebenezer that we just read at the end of this chapter today is a different Ebenezer than the one in chapter 4. I bring that up now to say this. The defeat that they suffered is, is an emotion that the nation sat in for 20 years. So we're told that the ark has been in... Um, where is it? Kiriath-Jerim, Kiriath, Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. So as we get into it, where we are this morning, the culture is sat in the defeat, the horrific defeat of over 30,000 people being killed in war by the Philistines, knowing, knowing that it was a judgment of God. And then we're told at the end of the last chapter where it was 70, if it's only 70, bad enough, but the, the different manuscripts have 50,000 
and 70. So they're, they're sitting in a tremendous slaughter culturally for 20 years. They're sitting for 20 years as the servants of the Philistines. And we're told that the ark is in this place, in Kiriath-Jerim, in this, in this man's house, you know, the, the household name, Abinadab, and they've consecrated Eleazar, assuming that, we're assuming that he is, you know, of the priests, and that's why he is keeping the ark. But this is one of the things to point out. The word house is extremely over-the-top repetitious in this chapter. The word Beth Shemesh, Beth in the Hebrew is house. Beth Shemesh means house of the sun. So when the ark was returned, it goes to Beth Shemesh, house of the sun. They open the ark. They don't want it anymore because of the great slaughter that occurred. Now it's in Kiriath Jerem in this man's house. And again, the emphasis on house in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's the place where God dwells. It's the place where you dwell. The Word of God is really clear that as we as believers are living out our lives following Jesus Christ, we are just traveling through. We are just sojourning. The Feast of Tabernacles is going to come up today. This was a, the last feast of the season, their, their annual feast. It's the Feast of Booze. The nation was supposed to get out of their homes and go live in a tent for a week. Again, pointing them back to when God dwelt in their midst in the wilderness and was faithful in all of those provisions, in that intimacy, all that was going on in that time. And it's also a future promise that God is going to come back and dwell in the midst of his people. And this is what we're looking for in the return of Jesus Christ. All of these are subjects that are going to come up as we travel through this this morning. So what I want you to sit in, in, the, in as we begin this in what's the last 20 years of your life look like? What's the last 20 years of our culture look like? And again, just put 20 years of your context into the sentence because there, that, there's a gap of 20 years between verses 1 and 2, and we miss that. And not only the ark wasn't just in this location for 20 years, it was in this location for 100 years. So thus far in the narrative, it's been there for 20 years. It's going to continue there until David brings the ark into Jerusalem. So this is roughly... The war that occurred with the Philistines is roughly 1100 B.C. David is not established as king over the nation of Israel until roughly 1000 A.D. So for 100 years, the ark is in this place. And again, the, the weight that's being placed on this is the place where God said that he was going to dwell in their midst, which was in the midst of the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle above the ark, correct? The tabernacle's gone. If the tabernacle still existed, the ark would have been there. In David's time, there's a tabernacle in Nob that we're going to see then, but the ark was never in that tabernacle. So again, it was just a religious reconstruction for the people. It wasn't the full weight of what God was doing. So again, here God is still... This, this object is not to be the thing worshipped. Their focus is now upon the Lord. And that's what this verse is saying. So for 20 years it says, All the house of Israel, that they lamented after the Lord. It's a weird sentence. The, the Septuagint says that they were looking attentively to the Lord. So there's two ideas here. One, they're just see, sitting in the consequences and the extended revelation that's 
of the punishment that God uh, disciplined them with in their culture for 20 years. Again, this is, this, this is a mixed bag culture, just like the culture that we live in is a mixed bag. Everybody's going to process through this based upon their own life context. But we're told that whatever's going on in the culture, that the Lord is the one who is bringing about a mourning in that relationship. And this idea, this word with, for mourning, uh, for lamenting, it's, it has this idea that they've gathered together to lament together. So, it's, this is the thing. God hasn't changed. Samuel hasn't changed. There's not a new worship song that comes out. There's not some hip, new, cool, young preacher that comes out. There's not some building that's been constructed. Nothing has changed. Except God is finally... And again, how much of this has to do with us and how much of it has to do with just God's nature and his activity and when he wants to do things in human history, I have absolutely no doubt that at this time in their history that the Holy Spirit has gone out into this culture and people are convicted of how they've missed God. Even last week, we finished with the people of Beth Shemesh. They didn't want the ark. They wanted the ark at a distance because of the danger that was there for them. This culture has been at an arm's length distance from their creator and from their savior, their deliverer, for 20 years. And now, culturally, they're coming together in unity in their mourning, in, in their lamenting. And what they should have done the first time when the Philistines came going to the Lord's representative and going and seeking the Lord and going in prayer rather than doing their own thing. Now they're doing what was right 20 years down the road. So Samuel, it feels like in, in verse 3 that there is, you know, you get a sense that Samuel is no, no longer in Shiloh, that he's living at his family home in Ramah. That means he's probably living with his mom, dad, in the neighborhood now. So those years that the locusts ate for Hannah, there's, there's some relationship returned there for her, assuming that she is still alive. You can assume that Samuel has been consistent in his teaching, in his, in his roles in the circuit as he is traveling around Israel, teaching and speaking the word of the Lord. So when the, all the house of Israel is lamenting and, and gathering together in, in this context, my understanding would, it, would, it would be that they are finally responding to what Samuel has been consistently teaching and others, of course, not just Samuel. But as this revival, so to say, is springing up, you can now see Samuel's language shift into this overarching statement that's going out into all the nation of Israel. Because we're, we're told this is all 12 tribes that they're, that they're going to come together in repentance. So it's not like he's traveling around, but his word and his message is getting out, and this is what it is. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying... Turn back. And this is, this is what repentance is. This has, the, there is no difference in this sentence than the calling of Jesus to come and follow him, than his calling to, um, that his kingdom is at hand. And that, that first public message that came out of Jesus' mouth was for the nation to once again turn back, repent. 
have a change of mind, have a change of heart, a change of life, a change of thinking, a change of actions. Turn back, and that's his focus in this. He's dealing with our hearts first and inward and our relationship with the Lord. And then there's an outward behavior that needs to occur. Put away your idols. And again, today we don't sit in this kind of idolatry, but we do sit in idols. And an idol is anything that you are looking to be a God or act like God for you in your life that is not God himself is an idol. An idol can be a relationship, it could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be your job, it could be a congregation, it can be a building, it can be money, possessions, it could be pride. They're all different kinds of, not all kinds, anything that you are looking to act like God for you that is not God is an idol. And here's the thing, he's encouraging them to sit in your own heart, Have a conversation with your spouse. Have a family conversation. Have a community conversation as there are small towns. Have a larger community conversation as bigger towns, full-on tribes, and now a national conversation that they're going to be having together about their hearts. Where's your heart? Why is it broken? Why is it dark? Why are you doing what you're not supposed to be doing? Why are you not doing what you ought to be doing? Again, there's, there's, there's no change in the message. God is just as gracious here as he is in the New Testament, as he is in our lives today. You have a responsibility to lay your heart open. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. Will you let me come in? and dine, become one with you, dwell with you. Again, the emphasis of house throughout this entire, the house of Israel. God was to dwell in the midst of the house of Israel. New Testament, he has given us the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. He dwells in our hearts. How's your heart? Is there turning away? And again, there's a, there's a, it's always a turning to the Lord, but the turn, that's the turn back. Where you're, you're heading in a direction where you shouldn't be. And the, the exhortation from Genesis to Revelation is always turn back to the Lord. He's there. He's waiting. And whatever he tells you to do outwardly, obey him. There's things that I have, that you have, in your life, in your context, that are interfering with your intimacy with God. Be radical. Cut it off. Stop doing it. There are things that are missing from your life that you know in Jesus Christ that you ought to be doing. Start doing it. What's keeping you from it? Is God keeping you? Is God keeping you in your sin and in the things that aren't satisfying to you and keeping you away from him, or is it you? I can't point the finger at God in my context, so I know you can't point your finger at him in your context. You're the one that limits God. You're the one that keeps him at arm's length. You're the one that invites him in. You're the one that spends time with him to worship him, to talk to him, 
to study his word, to experience him and to know him, to receive his grace, to receive his love, his purity, his cleansing, his holiness. You're the one that invites him in. And again, this is the context, is the stirring Samuel is seeing that is occurring in the culture. What do we need to do? What's the way back? How do we turn back? First, make your heart ready for the Lord. And by making your heart ready, you're getting you personally in that right relationship with God. And again, only you know if you're off or if you're on in that relationship and what's going on. Prepare your heart and then do the hard thing, which is cutting off these foreign gods and asterisks. And again, these are... You know, Ashtoreth is essentially queen of heaven in the day, the foreign gods, as he talks about of heaven in the day, the foreign gods, as he talks about Baals, as we talk, talked about Dagon last week, that was knocked over, head cut off, and hands chopped off of that statue. Dagon was the father of Baal in the mythology. So essentially you have, you know, just the male and female deities that they are worshiping part of the pantheon of the culture around them and not serving God only. And the word serve there, guess what it means? It means sweat. It means to toil. Your relationship with God, it's hard work and it takes effort. And he will bless your socks off in every way as you pursue him. But you and you alone have to do that hard work in serving him because I know personally nobody can walk out my faith in Jesus Christ for me. People, you encourage me every day. I get very encouraged by those who are already walking and those relationships, but I'm the only one that can make the choice to follow him. Verse 5, now, so you can tell that his word has gone out, and here is now a gathering at Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. We're going to get back into a lot of these definitions when we get to the end, so hold on. So as they gather together... Samuel, again, standing in this role as prophet and priest, says that he is going to pray. But in this moment, it says that he draws water and he pours it out. So there's no instruction in the Old Testament for a water libation. What's fabulous about this, again, this points to the Feast of Tabernacles. So hold your place here really quick, and I want you to turn to John chapter 7. Gospel John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 7, verse 37. says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze in the autumn. There, it's a seven-day feast. The last day is this, the eighth day, this holy convocation, this holy assembly that's specifically set apart. There is a tradition of this day that the priests, they gathered a pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam, which is north of the Temple Mount, and they're coming into the temple in a procession, and they are going to pour this out before the Lord. And it's at that moment that this water libation is being poured out that Jesus stands up and he cries out and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, 
and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We watched that video last week and that whole imagery. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit in believers flowing out into the world. And he defines that perfectly here. Thank you, John, in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So go back to Samuel. In this context, it says that they're fasting, so we don't know if they're also fasting from water, that as they have this water and they're pouring it out before the Lord as an offering, that it is a symbol of the Word of God, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and it could be a symbol for them in the moment that they are pouring what, what they need in their desert environment, they are pouring it out unto the Lord in this moment as they are intentionally causing themselves to have hunger and to have thirst and as they think those thoughts that is reminding them to turn to their mind and their attention to the Lord in that moment culturally as they're praying preparing their hearts is what they're doing and obviously ultimately fulfilled in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into all of us as believers and their confession is that they've sinned They've missed the Lord. They've missed His commands. Samuel already, but it says here, you know, that he judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. He has established already as prophet, priest, and judge. Ruler is what it's saying, that he is their national ruler under the Lord in this context. Verse 7. So this is the issue with slaves. The slaves are supposed to do what they're told, and the nation of Israel are slaves at this point. And one of the things, if you are, if you are in control of a people, you do not want those people to gather. And if they do gather, you want to be in control of that gathering. So what Israel has done is they've disobeyed their masters, They've disobeyed those who are over them, those who are subjecting them and persecuting them. And the Philistines don't like it very much. So as they've assembled, they know that they are assembling to the Lord, and they also know the cultural context of that. They know that they are assembling for war. So when it says that the Philistines hear that they've assembled in Mizpah, now the Philistines rally themselves up for war and they're coming to break up this gathering and to break up the rebellious nation of Israel. So what is Israel? How do they respond? What's their emotion? Fear. Would you be afraid of a bunch of swords coming at you? If you lived in Ukraine right now, would you be living in daily fear of the what-ifs? 20 years prior to this, as they gathered for war, was there still fear in that moment? Of course. Scenario one, Ebenezer one, they took that fear and they listened to leaders or they listened to their flesh and what they thought were good ideas and let's, let's go to war, let's man up, we'll do this. And God was judging them because of their bales and asterisks, because of their idolatry. Now their heart is right. They're seeking the Lord. They are afraid of the Philistines who are coming. 
It is, and again, just in today, it's no different than Russia coming against Ukraine. Russia is the powerhouse militarily. There's no reason that the little Ukrainians ought to be fighting as well as they have. It's the same circumstance. The Philistines were the military powerhouse. They had iron. House of Israel did not have iron. They had bronze, and they had lesser weapons of warfare. They're afraid, and in their fear, they look to Samuel. Samuel has been established as a prophet of God. The words that he speaks, they know that they are from God, and they are looking to Samuel. Samuel, your name means that, your, that our God heard your mom's prayer. And we know that when you talk to our Lord, our Lord answers. Remember Psalm 99 when we began our study in, in Samuel to begin with. The Lord hears Samuel and their ask of him is do not be silent to summon the Lord our God for us. And note, and I have this circled in my Bible twice, that he may save us. Because what did they say in the prior chapters? It, the ark, it would save us. Again, that they've had a heart correction, and it took a long time. Samuel, pray to God for me. You, pray to God for me. I'll pray to God for you. Our God will answer, and he is the one who will provide for you. He is the one who will save you. He is the one who will love you and value you and cherish you. He is the one who takes up residence and dwells in you. It's all about our Lord, period. Everything else is a libation, is a pouring out of that relationship out of us. And, that, and it's all good stuff, but it's all the inward. It's all that upward focus with him first and none else. And the sacrifice, he takes a suckling lamb as a whole burnt offering for that the adult study is getting into Leviticus. Actually, I've heard quite a bit about Leviticus, people reading it in our own congregation. But you go sit in the very boring, painful chapters of Leviticus, talking about all these sacrifices that we don't really understand. And we know that it's all pointing to Jesus, and we can understand that. But here's the idea when it comes to a burnt offering. If you want to give God a present, if you want to give God an offering, where does God live? Where is God? Up, right? The heavens are up. He is high. He is exalted. He is up. The earth is his footstool. This is gravity. You know, here we live down. How do you get a gift to God? Burn it. Smoke. That whole idea of it being a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet-smelling sacrifice... Everything that a, again, think about a suckling lamb from a, a lamb that is born. Um, you can't sacrifice it to the Lord for the first seven days. After the eighth day, you can sacrifice it to the Lord. You think about here's this innocent, pure life, and it is, it is going to lose its life for your sin, to cover your sin, to remove your sin. 
as an offering to the Lord and all the imagery that that represents, a whole burnt offering. You're not going to eat anything of this. You don't get anything from it. You are putting it on the altar and the fire is going to roast it and consume it and that offering is going to ascend to heaven. This is the altar of incense, that same imagery. When you burn incense and smoke, the imagery is to remind you that your prayers are ascending to the throne of God takes this suckling lamb, offers it as a whole burnt offering. And again, this is, you know, the, a lot of this, the, we, you don't see like the clear instruction of, well, hey, the, the, here's the national sin and here's the offerings that should have been happened and all that kind of stuff. Here's the moment, here's the response, here's what the Lord's doing, here's the sacrifice as priest that Samuel is offering. As he is offering this, he is crying out to the Lord for Israel, says that the Lord answers, and the Lord answers with a roar from heaven. And we don't have any sense that this is a storm. You don't want to put, throw some natural phenomenon into this other than here is a moment when God is thundering and whether it was audible words or he is just shaking the heavens in response to the prayer and causing confusion with the Philistines. Not sure how this played out. All I know is when you get into the New Testament and you have Jesus talking out loud to God and ask his Father to glorify himself, we are told in John that God, the Father, thundered from heaven, that he spoke audibly from heaven, that he has glorified his name, and that he will glorify his name. And the next sentence said, some people thought that they heard a voice, and other people thought that they just heard thunder. Exact same circumstance that go, is going on here. God is responding in a way that the children of Israel know that it's the Lord, and the Philistines are filled with th their own fear and confusion. And instead of having a great defeat as happened before, this time the nation of Israel is pursuing the Philistines. And then Samuel takes this stone between Mizpah and Shen, and he calls this stone Ebenezer, means stone of help. We're going to get to this in a minute. And he says, thus far the Lord has helped us, so that understanding that he is you know, set up a stone that it would be a memorial for the culture of what God did on this day that the present generation could tell subsequent generations what they saw God do. Philistines are subdued from this day forward underneath Samuel. We're going to see him again in Saul's day. David and Goliath will be a famous scene. And the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. What was stolen from them, seized from them, has been returned in regards to land and cities. And then we get this end snapshot of Samuel's life as he is judging Israel all the days of his life until Saul becomes king for 40 years and then David is king for 40 years. But here's the circuit, Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. But he's rooted in his home there in Ramah. So here is what I think is fascinating and all the threads that throw out into the rest of the Bible. It's all of these locations. So again, you just read through these things and 
You know, on the surface, you read the story, you pick up your little nuggets, but when you really sit in the Word of God and you study, and you do, well, what does this mean? Where does this come up from? Here's where the language gets really powerful. Bethel. Who knows the story of Bethel? Genesis 28. Jacob is fleeing in fear from his brother who wants to kill him because Jacob's a little liar. And Jacob puts a stone underneath his head and goes to bed, and he has a dream. And in this dream, in this vision, this is Jacob's ladder, where he sees a ladder, and he sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And then God manifests himself standing above the ladder and speaks to Jacob, I am the God of your father Abraham. I am the God of your father Isaac. I am going to give you this land. You are going to leave, but I'm going to bring you. Gives him all of these incredible promises. When Jacob wakes up in the morning, he sets up the stone that he had as a pillow, which is weird enough as it is. He sets it up vertically, pours oil on it, and says, this is Bethel. This is the house of the Lord. And then Jacob goes to his distant family and the whole story. So when he's running away from Laban, so now he's got four, well, two wives, a couple concubines, 12 kids, all these issues, right? And he's fleeing Laban. When he is fleeing Laban and uh, his daughter Rachel steals his household gods, Laban's hot on their heels, right? He's hunting them down. This is Mizpah. When Laban catches up to him, he catches up to him at Mizpah. And Laban's angry, and Jacob is angry. And they set up this heap of stones, and they call it Galid, which means a heap of stones, a heap of witness. And then they set up this other pillar. And this pillar is to watch. This is a the pillar, of, it's a watchtower. That's what Mizpah means, is watchtower, this location. But that God is going to watch between me and you, between Laban and between Jacob. That if either one of us cross this stone for harm, God's going to be there in opposition. This stone of watch, very important. When after Jacob meets up with Esau and he has this whole moment of wrestling with God, that chapter 35, after that moment where he's wrestled with the Lord, he's been broken, He's been radically changed. He's had a change of heart in his own 20 years. When he comes out of that, he returns to Bethel. And again, in Bethel, he returns back to that same stone and has another offering, pouring out water and oil on the stone. And the instruction that he gives to his household, put away your foreign gods from among you. It's the exact same thing that Samuel is telling the culture. And again, I can't tell you that the house of Israel knew these stories at this time. My assumption is that most of the culture is very ignorant to the links. What I'm communicating is God is not ignorant to the links. And Samuel is not ignorant to the links. The other town is uh, Gilgal. Who knows what Gilgal is? Anybody? Joshua? Anybody remember that? Anybody remember when God brings the nation of Israel into the promised land? What does he do to the Jordan River? 
Just like the Red Sea, he causes it to stand up on heaps on the side, and they went through the Red Sea on dry ground when the nation of Israel is coming into Israel. God causes the, the flooded Jordan River to stand up in a heap way upstream. The nation goes through on dry ground. In the middle of the Jordan, it says that Joshua sets up 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, which is cool, but that gets covered up by water because God gave them the instruction, I want you to take 12 stones out of this dry riverbed, and I want you to take them with you tonight where you're going to camp. So one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It says that they put these stones on their shoulder and that they go and they camp that night on the east side of Jericho in a town called Gilgal where these 12 stones were erected as a memorial stone so that everyone would know who the Lord is. Now, the stone that Samuel has just set up, he is repeating historical behavior. This is a day that you need to remember, is what he's telling the people. And the stone that he sets up, he gives it the name. This is the stone of help. The word for help, its root ultimately comes from salvation. God is our God of help. He is the one who delivers us. He is the one who saves us. What is the stone in the New Testament that has been erected for us for our salvation, for our stone of help? Luke calls it Calvary. The other three Gospels call it Golgotha. This is the hill that Jesus carried the cross up onto and where he was sacrificed for us as the Lamb of God. And you sit in the imagery of this singular chapter and how it goes into all of the history. Every, before the law, everything that God had done in Abraham and Abraham's family and his descendants through Moses, through delivering them out of Egypt, through all the days of the judges, up until Samuel's day, there's this repetitious cycle. And the, repetition, the repetitious call is for each individual and for the culture to turn, turn away from all the stuff that entices us because it entices us. Turn away from your boredom, turn away from your lethargy, turn away from your laziness and make your heart ready for the Lord. And again, how do I do this? All, all it is is stop doing the other stuff and take some time and just spend it with the Lord. And form a habit, right? But making your heart ready every single day. Lord, here am I. I don't know what this day holds today, but, but here am I. I know what my schedule looks like. I know what my calendar looks like. I'm sitting right now in my, in my personal life. I'm sitting at a fork in the road. God's given me an option. You can do this or you can do this. And he's going to bless me in both. And I don't know which one I want to do right now. So I'm saying, I'm preparing. Lord, I need you to speak to me. Because I have my reasonings, and I'm not a really smart man. I'm, re I'm really just kind of like happy-go-lucky and just take things as they come unless the Lord throws some roadblocks for me. Lord, I, wa I want you to speak to me and tell, tell me which one I ought to do. What's going to be not just a blessing for me, but what's going to be the greatest service for my family, for my kids, at my job, at my church. I don't know what's best five years down the road or ten years down the road. And the choice that I'm going to make in the very near future, that's that kind of decision that I'm sitting in. Lord, my heart, I am preparing it for you. Now, uh, you're already there. Now lead my heart. Lead my mind. Lead my conversations. 
I turn back to you constantly. And I have, just as, as we sit in Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and Ebenezer and Golgotha and Calvary, you, I sit in so many memorial stones in the Word of God, but those memorial stones in the Word of God, they're big for me when they've had some kind of impact in my life. Like, this is how God used this verse or this passage or this concept and this idea to lead me, to change me, to heal me, to protect me, to provide for me. Those are the memorial stones that I have in the Word of God. So every time I hit those passages, usually I lose the context, and I only remember my own personal context and how God used that to get me, to clean me, to save me. And what do I do in response? What do we do in response? Worship team, come on up. We worship. As you take communion today, remember the stone of Calvary. Our almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit sent the Son to become just like you. This bag of dirt, this flesh, to take up a house, to take up, to tabernacle, to be in our midst, to dwell in us, to what? To save us from sin, to teach us right from wrong, to lead us out of this world and to follow him as sojourners to his promised kingdom, to the promised house that he has promised to give to you for all eternity. When we remember his sacrifice, his body that was given for the remission of our sins, his blood that was poured out that is a symbol of that new covenant, that I don't have the old heart of stone anymore. I have a heart of flesh. And on this heart of flesh, I am told that the word of God is being written upon it in memory every single day through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. This is why we worship. This is why we, we remember. What did God do in your life yesterday? What's he done for you in the last week? What's he done for you in the last span of time where you just really need to give him thanks and praise and remember in the moment and turn back to him today? What are you asking him for in the future? Is there anything that's causing you a lot of fear where not only you, but you want your brothers and sisters to stand for you in prayer and not be silent? I need you to talk to God for me. And I know that I need to talk to God for you. He drives me to it. This is the almighty God who we are responding to, who has made you and loves you and cherishes you. And my ultimate prayer today himself known. I, I, I want God to thunder from heaven. Whether it's in your mind and in your heart. We're told in the New Testament when the early church was gathered together praying that the Holy Spirit rattled the foundations of the, of the building in response. Do it again Lord. I don't need that to believe. But those kind of moments with the Lord, they provide a great amount of courage and boldness to continue to follow him. And that that foundational knowledge that he is and that he will make himself known to you every single day and for all eternity.